Will you please stand as you are able at home for the reading of today's Old Testament lesson from the book of Job, chapter 42, verses 7 through 17. After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My wrath is kindled against you and against your two friends. For you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. Now therefore take seven bulls and seven rams, and go to my servant Job, and offer up yourselves a burnt offering. And my servant Job shall pray for you, for I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has done. So Eliphaz the Temanite and Bildad the Shuite and Zophar the Naamathite went and did what the Lord had told them. And the Lord accepted Job's prayer. And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he prayed for his friends. And the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Then they came to, there came to him all of his brothers and sisters and all who had known him before, and they ate bread with him in his house. They showed him sympathy and comforted him for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. And each of them gave him a piece of money and a gold ring. The Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. And he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, a thousand yoke of oxen, and a thousand donkeys. He also had seven sons and three daughters. He named the first Jemima, the second Keziah, and the third Karen Hapik. In all the land there were no women so beautiful as Job's daughters. And their father gave them inheritance along with their brothers. After this, Job lived 140 years and saw his children and his children's children four generations. And Job died old and full of days. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated if you're still standing. Uh, thanks, Megan, for reading our lesson this morning, and you even got the names of the three friends right. Very difficult reading, thank you. And thanks to all of our worship leaders uh, for sharing with us the beautiful music, for the prayers, for the liturgy, uh, for the joy that's ours to be together. I can picture uh, many of you in your pews where you normally sit here, and though there are just a handful of us, uh, we feel God's presence, and we feel your presence with us today in a really special way. Uh, so some of you have been sending me pictures, selfies, uh, of you worshiping at home, uh, streaming from home with your family, or in your bedroom or couch or wherever, and I got, I got a slide, I got a picture from last week from a very special visitor who somehow found her way online. This is Chelsea, who belongs to one of you. Uh, I have always known that all dogs go to heaven, but apparently this may also be true for felines as well. Chelsea, if you look closer, just down to the right, you'll see that she has her Bible. She is a sanctified cat, and so we today welcome all four-legged friends as well as our two-legged friends too. Uh, another interesting word that I got this week, I heard from a couple in our church who says that they're not sure they want to come back 
to the pews and worship because they're enjoying so much worshiping at home, uh, holding hands and snuggling together. Uh, Now, that word actually came from one of our bishops, to be honest with you, whose identity will remain anonymous. However, we just want to welcome you and say what a great joy it is to be together in worship. On March the 1st, the day before the tornado, the week before the pandemic, uh, we began a series on Job. And today, week five, we come to the end of that series on a man whose very name is a question. You remember his name means, where is the divine father? Job, this suffering servant of God, embodies the great Jewish theme of victim. I think that his is the voice of every man, every woman, articulating not only his own pain, but also the pain of all who have endured unjust suffering. And so in many ways, he speaks for all of us. The initial question in the book of Job is not, why do the righteous suffer? or why do bad things happen to good people? That is a question, but it's not the first question. The preliminary question in this book is, why are the righteous righteous in the first place? Why are devout people devout? You remember the heavenly council meeting that took place in the prologue where the Satan, who functions as the prosecuting attorney, challenges God by saying to the Lord of hosts, if you were to remove all the blessings from your servant Job, he would curse you. In other words, Job is only in it for the perks. What the Satan is saying is that piety pays. Religion is good for business. Job has the big house. He has the trophy wife. He has the big family. He has the real estate. He has the livestock. He has pension, retirement, 401k. He's even invested stock in toilet paper. He's got it made. But take all that away, says Satan, and he will vamoose. Of course, at this point, Job has no clue of what's going on behind the scenes, nor do his friends. And the suffering begins. The trials begin. When his three friends spot Job on the ash heap, scraping his boils, his sores, with a broken piece of of pottery, they are shocked, they are appalled, and the Scripture says they sit in silence for a whole week. But after seven days, they grow uncomfortable with the silence, and for some reason, they feel the need to explain his plight. The conventional theology of that day was called double retribution. In other words, if you're hurting, you must have sinned. If you're prosperous, you must be righteous. In other words, you reap what you sow, they said to Job. Of course, their counsel was not helpful, nor was it true. And in this case, they're merely heaping guilt on top of grief. They are doing what we sometimes are adept at in our culture. They are blaming and shaming the victim. For the next 35 chapters, they go back and forth, Job venting his pain, friends explaining his pain, 
And finally, in chapter 38, after all that lamenting, after all that questioning and theologizing, Job gets his wish, an audience with God. God shows up in chapter 38 that we studied last week in the whirlwind, but he doesn't come giving answers. In fact, he brings questions of his own. Who is this, says the Lord, that questions my wisdom without knowledge? Where were you, Job, when I planned the earth? Where were you when I laid out the blueprints, when I poured the, the footings and extended the foundations? And with that, he takes Job on a whirlwind tour of creation, and Job finally sees the world from a different point of view. Not from his own perspective, but now he sees creation from God's perspective, and suddenly Job can't even remember his question. I remember, I remember a grieving mother who lost her teenage son in a car crash. She was devastated, as you can imagine, and the morning before the funeral, she went into her office, she picked up her Bible, and she read Job chapters 38 through 41, God speaking in the midst of the whirlwind. When a friend asked her, why did you choose that passage, she said, and I quote, I needed to know that my pain was not all there is in the world. I needed to know that God's power of cre creation and recreation is actually stronger than the power of my grief and my chaos. I think the same was true for Job. He discovered in his experience with God that he didn't need answers, he needed presence. He needed more than theology, he needed revelation. R.C. Sproul, the great reformer, the great theologian in his book, Surprised by Suffering, writes these words. Ultimately, the only answer God gave to Job was a revelation of himself. It is as if God is saying to him, Job, I am your answer. Job was not asked to trust a plan. He was asked to trust a person a personal God who is sovereign, wise, and good. Says Spruill, God is saying to Job, learn who I am, and when you know me, you will discover that together we can handle anything. By the way, the word for know or knowledge in the Hebrew, yada. It's not hypothetical knowledge. It's not theoretical knowing. It's personal experience. For example, today, if I were to say, I know about Laura Brantley, or I know about Megan Teagarden or Adam Jones, that wouldn't tell you much. But if I said to you, I know Laura, I know Megan, I know Adam, that's a different thing. That's about a relationship. It's not just information, it's a relationship. And so it was with Job. Listen again to Job's response to God's presence in the whirlwind in chapter 42. I know, Yahweh, that you can do all things, and nothing you wish is impossible. 
I have spoken the unspeakable and tried to grasp the infinite. I had heard about you with my ears, but now I have seen you with my eyes. And so I will be quiet, comforted that I am dust. What happened in that whirlwind was that God became personal. And when God becomes personal, dust begins to trust. And trust leads to surrender. I think you would agree that at this point in the story, surrender is the beginning of Job's spiritual transformation. The moment of surrender is not when life is over, that's when life actually begins. I've discovered that we get closer to God, not simply by trying harder, but by surrendering more. And that's what happened in the whirlwind, surrender. In the final verses that Megan read for us, this spiritual transformation affects Job not only in his vertical relationship with God, but also in his horizontal relationship with others. Notice that in the epilogue, God actually calls Job to pray for the very ones who offended him. It's interesting we see at this point that Yahweh was wrathful or angry with the three friends for not speaking the truth about himself. Indeed, he refers to their counsel to Job as folly. The Hebrew word is nabala. It means foolish. It means shallow, superficial, empty talk. Certainly in our culture, there's no shortage of Nabala in the world, and I'll confess that I've offered my fair share of Nabala as well. But the point is that God doesn't abandon these foolish friends, and he won't let Job abandon them either. In fact, he calls these three to make sacrifice and to place themselves under the spiritual guidance of Job. I can imagine it probably wasn't easy for them because to do that would be an admission of their own foolishness. But think of poor Job being asked to pray for them. I can imagine he resisted at first. I would have. Lord, you want me to pray for them? These wise guys who, who kicked me when I was down, who poured guilt on top of grief, who added insult to my injury, I'll pray for them all right, Lord, but it won't be intercession, it'll be come to Jesus. But Job had surrendered to God. And that surrender included not only his angst toward God, but his resentment towards others. And so he prayed. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his classic book that is a must for all Christians, Life Together, writes it like this. A Christian fellowship lives and exists by the intercessions of its members for each other or it collapses. I can no longer condemn or hate a brother for whom I pray. No matter how much trouble he has caused me, his face that previously may have been strange and intolerable to me is transformed in intercession into the countenance of a brother for whom Christ died, the face of a forgiven sinner. This, he writes, is a joyous discovery for the Christian who begins to pray for others. 
And that's what Job did. He prayed for the very ones who had offended him. And watch what happens. In chapter 42, verse 10, after intercession, restoration happens. Listen to this verse. And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends. (laughs) And the Lord gave him twice as much as before. I want you to notice the pathway of spiritual formation. The experience in the whirlwind leads to surrender. Surrender leads to intercession. Intercession leads to reconciliation. And reconciliation leads to restoration. God restores Job's possessions. In fact, double the blessings. In other words, an abundance, restoration. There's feasting. There's a covered dish supper. Everybody comes, the whole neighborhood. They bring gifts, money, jewelry. And even Job's lifespan is doubled. He lives to be 140 and sees four generations of his family, not just his grandchildren, not just his great-grandchildren, but his great-great-grandchildren. And verse 12, chapter 42 says, and the latter part of his life was better than the beginning. And best of all, I love this part, Job gets his kids back. Seven sons and three daughters. Mind you, these are not replacement children. They're originals. Restoration is not replacement. Restoration is resurrection. The Scripture says everything that was lost is restored in abundance. This, I believe, is a precursor to the resurrection. This passage at this point reminds me a little bit of Simon Peter. You remember in Matthew 19, Jesus was giving plain talk to the disciples about what lay ahead. He said, following me is going to lead to self-denial. It's going to lead to sacrifice. It's going to lead to a cross. And Simon Peter was concerned. He was starting to sort of wonder if the blessing of following Jesus would be equal to the sacrifice of following Jesus In fact, he gives voice to the question, Lord, we've given up a lot to follow you, as if to say, what's in it for us? And Jesus responded like this, truly I say unto you, in the age to come, in the time of restoration, when the Son of Man sits on his throne, you who have left houses or brothers, or sisters, or mothers, or daddies, or sons, or daughters, or fields, for my sake, will receive a hundred times as much. And oh, by the way, also, you will receive eternal life. What was Jesus saying? Simply this. You cannot outgive God. You cannot outbless God. You cannot out-sacrifice Jesus. You cannot out-love Christ. Isn't it wonderful to know sometimes that you can't out-God, 
God. Whatever the cost, there's an abundance coming. Whatever the sacrifice, restoration is ahead, not because we're worthy, but because God is good. I tell you of all the questions in Job, and there are many, the most difficult question to me in this book is not why do bad things happen to good people? The most difficult question is why has God been so good to me? Good luck answering that question. There's one other detail. I want you to notice in this story at the end, that in the reference to the children, notice it's the girls who are named, and that's odd. In a patriarchal culture like this, 6th century B.C., it's not the women who get the top billing, it's the men. It's their names you need to know, but not in this text. The girls are named, and the meaning of their hard-to-pronounce names are simply this, dove, Cinnamon and eyeshadow. That's what their names mean. By the way, these are all Hebrew symbols of peace, abundance, and grace. He named these girls peace, abundance, and grace. And watch this. The girls also received an inheritance. That's unheard of. In that culture, it's radical. The estate always goes to the sons, not the daughters, But it says here the girls get a share of the estate. It's right here in plain Hebrew. And then the author specifies that these girls were the most beautiful creatures in the world. You say, what does that matter? It matters. What the author is saying is that in the time to come, in the restoration the center of gravity will no longer be on righteousness, it'll be on beauty. (laughs) That even in our suffering, there is beauty. Isaiah foresaw it. He'll give me beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning. He'll put a song of praise in place of sorrow. That's restoration. I've been thinking about our students lately, our high school students, especially the class of 2020, our seniors. The semester is not ending as they expected. A friend of mine this week sent me a video of a senior recognition service in a church in Memphis. A graduating senior in their tradition gets to preach the sermon on the first Sunday of April or thereabout. And this year, because of the pandemic, they taped this service last week. Peter Calkins, a 17-year-old boy who's going to graduate, shared the message. He recited Psalm 23, and then he preached his homily to an empty church. They taped it. I saw it. I want to close with an excerpt from Peter's message. He said, three weeks ago, when I first started working on this sermon, my my life looked a lot different. I was certain I had three months left in high school. I was certain I would go to one last prom. 
I was certain that I would join other seniors here at my church for the blessing of the graduates. I was certain that I would walk across the stage and receive a diploma. I was certain of my summer job before I went off to college this fall. But now, he says, I am certain of none of that. I don't expect to go to class in high school again. I don't expect that we will gather for the blessing of the graduates or for high school graduation. I'm not even sure, he said, that Duke University will be open to receive students in the fall. I saw a tweet that sums up a lot of my feelings right now. It said, and he quotes, to be honest, I didn't plan on giving up quite this much for Lent. It is within this context, he said, that we read Psalm 23. At one point, the psalmist says, Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. And said Peter, I'll be honest, I I thought that that was pretty odd. Who would prepare a table in the presence of enemies? But then it occurred to me that that's really the point. There will always be enemies. There will always be dangers, prejudice, disease, and reasons to be afraid. But God nevertheless prepares a table before us. In the presence of enemies, he said, God isn't hoarding toilet paper. He is gentle and calm. But it's the next few lines, Peter said, that really hit home for me. It begins with the word, surely. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. It says surely. Right now, said Peter, nothing feels sure for high school seniors. In fact, nothing feels sure for any of us. We don't know when life will get back to normal or what normal will look like when we get back to it. But surely, God's goodness and mercy will follow. Surely, we will dwell in the house of the Lord. That's the promise that has sustained so many in times of the whirlwind. And that's the promise that can restore us today. Sustained by that promise, he said, maybe we too can prepare tables for others around us. Maybe we can share goodness and mercy with people who are struggling more than we are in these tough times. This is not how we expected to conclude our high school careers, speaking to a virtual congregation assembled online. But surely, we will get through this with the promise of God's presence, and surely that will sustain and restore us until we're gathered in one place again. End of sermon. That's quite a testimony for a disappointed teenager. And that's the gospel of Job. That's the gospel according to Peter Calkins. In a world of uncertainty and ambiguity, God says, surely. Thanks be to God. Amen.